Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall, one of your co-hosts, along with Bruce Wayner today. And we have a guest with us today named Shaheen Shane. And Shaheen is a very interesting person that you are going to be able to understand his story and what he offers through this show today. But Shaheen, thank you for joining us on the Money Advantage today. So honored to be on. This is going to be fun. Awesome. Well, let me just give a little bit of an introduction and then I will let you tell the rest of your backstory. But Shaheen Shane has built a billion dollar business and he did that by time by the time that he was 18. Now he's an award-winning business mogul, author, filmmaker, and inventor of herbal ecstasy, the nootropic. I don't even know how to say that word. Is that correct? Yeah, totally. The nootropic that sparked the 100% legal smart drug movement. He's been called the Willy Wonka of Generation X, and now he's the world's leading Amazon industry expert. Fascinating backstory. So if you are looking to accelerate accelerate your business, you can learn how Shaheen used a mix of proprietary software, promotions, copywriting, ads, and social proof to accelerate his own success. And we are huge fans of learning from those who have been successful. And that's what we're going to exactly do today. So again, Shaheen, thank you so much. And thank you for joining us on the show. Fun times. I'm excited. So, so Shaheen, um, you know, Rachel has some really good, um, introductory comments all the time and she's awesome but I have some things that I always like to ask from my I'm a lot older than she is so I have a lot more experience <laughs> so one of my good buddies is uh, Nader Javaharian who is also from uh, uh, Iran and he came over about the same time you did maybe a little earlier in the earlier 70s and uh, he's a he's one of the most tremendous entrepreneurs I know also is was there anything you know growing up or your family that actually, or is this just a coincidence that the two people from Iran that I've run into uh, are tremendous entrepreneurs? Third world, Bruce, it brings grit and resilience. When you are not expectant of everything being handed to you, and in fact, you have to fight for everything that you've got, it creates a certain kind of stick-to-itiveness, it creates a certain type of resilience in the human nature. We came here as immigrants from Iran, as many did during the fall of the Shah in the late 1970s. And when we came here, I didn't speak English. I was thrown into a public school system that left a lot to be desired here in Los Angeles. And we were solidly poor. My family was well-to-do in Iran. We were upper middle-class family there. Uh, my mother worked for, uh, I believe, Lockheed, and my dad worked for uh, Coopers and Wilbur in a big accounting firm. They were, they were solid, you know, people in society. There, but when we came mm. here to the United States, we were third-class citizens, and I very quickly learned that I had to be able to hold my own. I had to be able to get what I wanted for myself. And I learned that as an adolescent. It's an interesting story. When I was in school, I would get the, you know what, beat out of me. I know Rachel's happy because I didn't curse. I'm not going to curse <laughs> on your show. Um, but I would get the, you know what, kicked out of me every single day. It was, we were, we were, we were at the total bottom of the totem pole in Los Angeles. And when I came in, I didn't speak English, people picked on me and I decided, you know what, I'm not going to take it anymore. So I gathered up all the, all the kids 
in the school that didn't belong, all the, the misfits and the, the, there was something wrong with everybody in my little gang. And I said, guys, we're going to do something cool. We're going we're gonna to start a criminal enterprise. We are going to start an illicit products business. And we were just little kids. I mean, mm. you know, in, in grade school. Oh, wow. And what we did was we had a little Greek kid who I'm not going to use the term midget because it's not politically correct, but he was a very tiny guy and he was super cute. And we would have him wear baggy clothes and we would walk into the liquor store and a bunch of us would raise a little bit of a ruckus. We would spill a drink or do something funny. And he would be sticking the little bottles of liquor, all the adult magazines, the, the nudie magazines, all that stuff in his shirt. And we started an illicit products business, glue, cigarettes, you name it. We were selling it all, bubble gum, candy bars, everything. And I very quickly learned that Crime was very lucrative. However, the other thing that I learned was that I was really bad at crime. I was really terrible at crime because we would always get caught. We would end up in detention all the time. The principal had his eye out for us. I think back then they weren't allowed to hit you, but I would get my hand smacked all the time by that guy. We would, just, we would be on his S list, if you know what I mean. And what happens in detention, you meet other kids that are criminals and they become your customers. So it was a terrible cycle for us, but I at mm -hmm. least had the wherewithal to realize, dude, you are just bad at crime. Crime should not be the thing that you get into because you are always getting caught. Yeah. That's yeah. Well, that's probably a good lesson in many ways. It's just so interesting yeah. that we look at and recognize that dollars follow value and you've got to provide true value to people. And if you're going to have long-term sustainable wealth, that's much different than having something that is short-lived that is created by taking advantage of other people. The principle of wealth does not allow you to live a long-term wealth cycle that takes advantage of others. So it's fascinating that you learned that um, from experience at a very young age. Yeah, totally. I mean, look, I, I thought we were bringing a, a goods and service to the world that people needed. So I didn't really think we were taking advantage. Maybe the liquor store, maybe the liquor store that was uh -huh. inventory was being taken advantage of. So there, that's a good, that's a good, it, it was not a sustainable long-term business plan. Absolutely. And I remember in those days reading Think and Grow Rich, I was fascinated by the fact that people had reduced the art of making money to a science. So as a, as a grade school kid, I was reading Tony Robbins and Wayne Dyer, and I was reading Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill and Augmentino and all these great books. Now, of mm -hmm. course, what they, what they meant wasn't hold up a liquor store and sell it at, from your school locker. <laughs> but right. I had a lot of learning to do. <laughs> so I hit 15 and I realized things aren't getting much better. Still pretty much second-class citizen, my folks managed to buy a house in an up and coming area and real estate, of course, shot up in that area. We were still poor, never bought clothes. My dad worked at a dry cleaner. We had to wait for somebody to leave their clothes for us to get clothes. I would pray that somebody cool would be walking into the dry cleaners and wouldn't pay their bills. So we would get to wear their clothes the next mm -hmm. season. Never ate at restaurants, never did any of that stuff. But around me was all this wealth. It was this up and coming part of Los Angeles called Pacific Palisades, which was kind of like a Beverly Hills by the beach, beautiful hillside community. And when they bought their house, it was a rough and tumble, hippy-dippy kind of place, but quickly it, it rose up. And I saw all this wealth around me. I saw the people in their fancy sports cars and their big, beautiful houses. 
And we were still living in this kind of cruddy old house from the 1800s. And you know, it was one of the last ones from the 1800s standing there. And there wasn't, there, there wasn't much for me to aspire to other than what was going on around me. So I went to and asked my parents, I said, hey, how, I want to be rich. How do I get that? And my parents did what every immigrant family does. They said, look at Mr. Rafsi across the street. This man, he's a doctor. The only way you will be successful is to be a doctor. It is the pinnacle of success. He has Mercedes. He has beautiful wife. I remember looking at his wife. Like, oh my God, she's not that beautiful. And he has a nice car, a nice house. And I was like, dude, that guy leaves at 5 a.m. in the morning. He has so much school debt. He's been going to school for 14 years. He's fat. He's old. The family doesn't look that great. The car the bank owns, the house the bank owns. Mm -hmm. I don't want that life. So to my parents' uh, disapproval, I decided to pack up and leave. I cut all ties. I knew that I would have to burn my ships and find my course to success on my own. And I just knew that if I stayed at home, it was not going to be good for me. The, the alternatives were not great. So I just bailed. And during this time, LA was in a building boom. It was just the tail end of Reaganomics uh, and you know the late 80s, early 90s. And LA was in a huge building boom, but, and they were building these apartment complexes with hundreds and hundreds of units. And I quickly learned that if you could figure out what the code was to get into the lockbox, I could sneak in, I could sleep there at night and wake up in the morning, clean up before the brokers got in, and I could be out and I'd be living in a luxury apartment. Maybe there wouldn't be water or power, but I'd throw a sleeping bag down and it would be great. And I did that for a while until I kind of got my bearings. I slept in the backseat of an old Lincoln Continental that I had, I had bought for a few hundred bucks, but it never ran. <laughs> and quickly I realized, okay, I'm going to have to sustain myself. I started hanging out at the community college where I found a mentor. I managed to get somebody to mentor me. I, I write about it, by the way, on my in my book, Billion, How I Became King of the Throw Pill Cult, which by the audiobook just released on Amazon. The hardcover's out too. Mm, awesome. uh, yeah, yeah. So I write about that. And this guy mentored me. I got into the electronic music scene, the dance scene. I realized that I could actually go into these clubs and in front of the speakers was very loud. Behind the speakers, very quiet. You can actually sleep behind speakers. I didn't know that. So I would go into the clubs. I decided to immerse myself in the rave culture that was emerging in those days. And quickly, as I was looking around, I realized that there was a swift business going on. But the business was not the promotion of the parties, the people collecting the entry fees. They were always broke, and they were always running away, hoping not to pay the DJs, not to pay for the, for the venue. Mm -hmm. People at electronic music parties did not drink in those days. So the bar was dismal. They didn't make any money at the bar. So the locations didn't make any money. The only people making money was these dudes hanging out in the back of the club. And, um, you know, they had a little bit of a rough look and demeanor to them. Sometimes they had a few bodyguards. It was the people selling the drugs. One drug in particular called ecstasy, MDMA, methyl dioxymethamphetamine, the most popular party drug of all time, was legal in the 1980s and made illegal in the late 80s, early 90s. Now... I was at the right place at the right time. I thought to myself, 
Well, that's great. I'll just do what those guys do. Another criminal enterprise. I'll sell ecstasy. This is going to be fantastic. I'll be rich. I'll have the Porsche. I'll have the beautiful girlfriend. I'll have the big house. Life is going to be great for me. But then I reflected back to my criminal activities as an adolescent thinking, dude, have you forgotten so quickly? You are bad at crime. You, sir, are not allowed to do crime. Think another thought. And it was like the two, you ever see those old cartoons where the two little guys show up on the shoulder? Oh, yeah. uh-huh. One is an angel and one is a devil. And I had to like brush off the devilish guy and, and listen to the other guy. And I thought, well, wait a second. What if I can make a analog to ecstasy, but using legal natural herbs? It would be legal. It would be safe. Nobody could tell me that I can't do it. And I could make a killing. I would just sell it here at the clubs. I would get these guys to sell my stuff. So at that time, through the clubs, I managed to get myself a girlfriend. I found a girlfriend whose dad was the superintendent of some very uptight, I think even a religious school district, something like that. And I managed to convince her to let me come in through the back door as he went out in his stuffy suit through the front door to go to work. And in her kitchen, I cooked up all the prototypes. I got herbs and we just cooked it up. I didn't have money to buy the machine that puts the herbs in capsules. So what we did was I mixed it with honey. It's a Chinese thing and made it look like capsule. We cooked it up in our oven and we had all the kids who were playing hooky in our neighborhood try it, teenagers. And one day we found a formula that worked, worked spectacularly. People were dancing, jumping all around. And I thought to myself, this is it. This is the time. This is what we got to do. I had all of them pack them into little baggies. We had a nice little production line going in our kitchen. And I filled my backpack with the baggies with the glue filled, goo filled, not glue, goo filled little kind of capsules of things. And I walked into the club and I walked up to the first and scariest drug dealer I saw. This was a guy who had tattoos on his face. Now, in perspective, in the 1980s, If you had tattoos, it was a totally different thing. Now, if you have tattoos on your face or your neck, they give you a platinum record. They call you Post Malone or Machine Gun Kelly or one of these guys. Back in the 80s, it meant something totally different. And I'm sure Bruce knows in the 70s, something way, way different. You probably would be clinically considered insane if you had that. This guy had tattoos on his neck and his face. He had the three little dots, which I think he meant he killed someone in prison or was involved in something crazy. He had his bodyguards moved aside. He had two, like... It was almost like rock video girls behind him, rap video girls behind him. And I walked up to him and I said, hey, he said, hey, kid, bugger off. I got, you know, I'm out of, I'm out of, I'm out of ecstasy. I'm out of ease. And and the language was, was much more foul than that, but I've been warned. So I'm going to be, I'm going to to behave on this show. I'm I'm rerunning all this stuff. I'm I'm bleeping myself in my head. He said, hey, kid, bug off. You know, I got nothing for you. And I said, hey, no, dude, 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 look, I don't want drugs. I I don't even do that stuff. He said, what? He said, are you a cop? What are you, a cop? I'm going to, you know, effing kill you. And I said, no, no, not a cop. Not a cop. Totally not a cop. Uh, I'm a businessman. And I want you to sell this stuff. And he looks at it. And and I'm just looking at him, looking at the stuff with disgust. He's now looking at a little baggie filled with goo-filled something or other. He's got no clue what it is. And he asks me, he goes, what is it? And I go, oh my God, I haven't thought of a name. I just came to me. I was like, herbal ecstasy. And in that moment, again, I was in the flow, right place at the right time. 
two party goers walk up to him. I hear him talking to him. They're negotiating. He's doing, throwing his hands up like I've got nothing. And finally, in frustration, he motions one of the bodyguards to come up to me. They let me in and he grabs my entire bag with all the pills in it. And he grabs the baggie. He hands it to him. He takes the cash. He looks at me. He says, come back in two hours. And it was one of the longest two hours of my life. I remember thinking, my life is flashing before me. It's been a good run. I think my teenagers were fantastic. This is great. And I started praying. I'm not a religious person. I started thinking, God, if you let me out of this, if you let me out of this one, I will do, I will go, I will go home. I will brush my teeth every night. I will do all this. I will be the best person in the world. Two hours passes. One of the bodyguards motions for me to come. Now, this guy was cold faced. He had, I think, one emotion and one look, and they both looked the same like he was going to kill you. And he stares me down for a minute. And I'm looking at him. I'm sweating bullets. I'm thinking of all the excuses I'm going to give him to not kill me. He hands me a little bit of cash and he says, kid, when can you get me more? And that was it. Went from one guy to a thousand guys to 10,000 guys to hundreds of thousands of guys. A lot of these guys legitimized their business. They saw themselves as petty drug dealers within clubs, petty ecstasy dealers. I saw them as a hidden untapped distribution circuit that the rest of the world had ignored. And I mm -hmm. got my pills through them. A lot of them opened up legitimate businesses, legitimate stores. They went completely legit. They made, I made tons of millionaires in those days because they had no risk. So I mitigated all the risk from their criminal enterprise, made them legitimate. Their money was bankable. They could do whatever they wanted to do in those days selling my product. And they had no fear of persecution. Now, from there, we went into brick and mortar. We sold at GNC, Warehouse Records, Tower Records. Larry Flint sold in all the adult sex shops across the country. We sold the product in, I don't know, probably about 30 or 40 countries around the world. I had offices in Paris, in Tokyo, in Berlin, all over the world. Now, remember, six months before, I was sleeping in abandoned buildings. I was sleeping in the beach. I was sleeping in the backseat of a car. And now I'm running a company with thousands of distributors, with hundreds of employees. Anybody in those days that could fog up a mirror, I would hire because I was producing this stuff, guys, for 25 cents. That was my total cog, cost of goods. I was selling it for $20, mostly cash. Mm -hmm. And then the news broke. I had one of those big phones. It was one of the first cell phones that came out. It was like, it was almost like you had to carry a briefcase and it had this was like a, looping it was wire. A, it was, it was in a bag, that? right? It was in yeah, a bag, right? A yeah, bag yeah. And a yeah. phone. And my phone rang. I, I, I fell asleep in one of my cars with my NSX or my Ferrari or my Lamborghini. One of my cars. I had an exotic car collection, boats, planes, all that stuff. And I fell asleep. I didn't sleep much. I slept like about two hours. I would sleep on the factory floor. I would sleep on my office floor. I'd fall asleep in the passenger seat. Don't ever drool on a Lamborghini. It's not a good look. And I would wake up and the phone rang and I was like, okay, cool. Let me get it. And by the way, it, do you remember it was like $2 a minute or something? It was $3 a minute on those darn things. <laughs> it was like insane. And it was, it was the worst reception ever. And I, I remember picking it up and the news had broke. They needed me in the office right away. I rushed over to my office and my secretary was pale faced. And she said, Hey, you know, uh, the news just broke. You've done over a billion dollars 
in revenue. Sam Donaldson with Nightline is outside. Montel Williams wants to fly you out to be on a show. Details Magazine, two Newsweek covers, LA Times, New York Times, London Observer. We were it. And I remember having a panicked moment thinking to myself, I don't know how much a billion dollars is, literally. I don't even, I, I don't know the definition of a billion dollars. How could we have done that? And I remember thinking to myself, does this mean I have to get an accountant? And that was, that was those days. That was the beginning of the very crazy ride that became our ecstasy. And again, you know, I write about it in my book, Billion, that just dropped. Hey, uh, Shaheen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal uh, something uh, to our listeners and to Rachel that she probably has never heard before. So in my previous career, I was a biology teacher and a coach. And one of my coaching uh, endeavors was a high school football coach. And we went to a, we would always go try to get better. So we would go to colleges across the nation and learn from them. Well, in the, when the, in the nineties, I won't mention the college, but we went to somewhere and, you know, they, we were talking and then one of the coaches said, Hey, I got this stuff from GNC and it was called crank. I remember this vividly. And I'm wondering if it was a kind of like a derivative of what you're talking about. And I actually took it and I'd never taken any illegal drugs at that time, or I'd never taken anything that I would consider, you know, to make myself feel differently. And, and I thought this, and the reason they did, they gave it to their football players to actually get them kind of hyped up and especially during uh, weight workouts. And that's exactly the way I felt. I mean, I just felt like this kind of this out of body, like, um, I guess the best thing I could, I can relate it to with the uh, our listeners is when you take cold medicine and you get this kind of buzzing sensation in your in your head and kind of like you don't really feel your body and you kind of feel like you're floating and so on and so forth. Is there any re any relationship to that that what you were selling? Um, well, I, I have no idea what crank is, although I would probably advise our viewers and yourself to avoid anything called crank. <laughs> <laughs> This was a long just time ago. Yeah. Its, yeah, just by the merits of its name, I think that's a pretty good life design skill right there. <laughs> I just put in my journal, don't take crank. But <laughs> with that said, there were a lot of knockoffs and there were a lot of products that came out after us kind of going for that. Here, here's the most interesting part of that. In the 1980s, one of the big pharma companies who, and, and I'm going to say all this is alleged, so nobody ends up suing me. But one of the largest pharma companies had come out with a drug in the 1980s to solve the problem of the baby boomers who had come out of the, the previous Vietnam era generation of the 60s and 70s who were all depressed. Mm. A lot of people had PTSD. A lot of people were depressed. So they have this thing called selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs. And there was a very popular one. I won't mention it. Um, because I believe it's still in use today, worked very well, apparently, allegedly, for depression for that generation. One problem, th and, and this was one of the most successful drugs of the era. Anybody in that era knows everybody was on it. It led to something in the 1990s, which was male erectile dysfunction and female sexual dysfunction. But I don't want you guys to worry. This same benevolent pharma company, allegedly, had designed a separate blue pill, a beautiful blue pill that solved that problem. 
Now, I, I'm not exactly sure what the definition of a racket is, but this, this to me, might fall under that category if, in fact, this is what allegedly happened. Now, their plans were going really great. They had spent a couple billion bucks developing this drug. It increased blood flow and circulation and really worked well. That's the thing with these kinds of drugs. It worked well. Forget about the side effects. It worked very well. The problem was you had this teenage, long-haired Iranian kid. That's me, by the way, for anybody listening to this that I'm talking about. That's when I had hair. I'm wearing a pink robe and sitting on this throne behind this big castle. It's a picture taken by David LeChapelle. You guys can check it out on my book or my website. And what they didn't anticipate is this teenage kid selling over a billion dollars of product. Now, maybe that wouldn't be such a problem. Only people were taking it to a great degree for that same effect, and it worked as well. Only other problem was that I was not regulated like they were. Drugs have to have double-blind, placebo, clinical trial, all that stuff. We did not. We could just make a product and sell it. That was it. And I had no red tape. I had no C-suite executives. I had no board of advisors. I was it. My, my math was simple. Make it for 25 cents, sell it for $20 all day long. People didn't need a doctor's prescription for it. So we were huge. Now, imagine how that big pharma company felt and what they did. They pulled all the levers that they could. They got lobbyists, alle allegedly, I'm saying all, everything I'm saying here is alleged. They got lobbyists to go to the government. They instituted a new head of the FDA with the approval of the president at that time. And that guy went on national TV on Sam Donaldson's show and specifically mentioned us and said that we were one of his main priorities. And this is on YouTube. You guys can watch, watch the footage of it. So we became public enemy number one as far as these things go. But the problem was that they had no precedence for banning us. There was no legal imperative that they could follow to take us off the market. And moreover, our products were safe. They didn't injure anybody. They didn't hurt anybody. Nobody was getting hurt. They didn't know what to do. They were panicking. On one end, they've got the lobbyists from all these pharma companies coming after them saying, hey, you know, get this, get this kid out of there. And on the other hand, they've got their three-letter agencies, all the three-letter agencies saying he's not doing anything wrong. That's fascinating. I mean, it's interesting. You're definitely in a space that's not something that we talk about on a regular basis. And it's, it's just really interesting that you found a interesting way to penetrate a market and not be doing anything wrong at the same time. So fast forward us, we're getting towards the end of our time here. Fast forward us through what was the end of that? Um, and how have you transitioned into selling on Amazon, which also probably seems to any listener, how is this related in any stretch of the imagination? But I would like you to just kind of share how did you make the transition to Amazon? Why are you working with Amazon today? And how do you help people with that? Excellent question. So after that, I went on to solving the problem of vaporization. I invented all the technology that became vapes. I realized one of my superpowers is spotting trends, finding niches, dominating those niches. And I've got a very simple formula. I'm happy to share that with any of your audience. After the whole vaporization thing and the technology that I built, the book that I wrote became the forerunner to all the vape technology that you see today. That company went public. I exited was a fairly lucrative exit for me again. 
And I went on to developing another nootropic brain supplement called Accelerol, which is still available on Amazon. It's pretty good. There's one called Accelerol and another one called Focus Plus. But in those days, it was $120, a lot cheaper now. In those days, I thought, man, I got to figure out a way to sell this stuff. Well, there was this little nerdy looking Silicon Valley guy named Jeff Bezos. You could email him and he would respond. Bezos was not the the bulking stud of a dude that you see now on TV. He was a nerdy little guy, or at least we thought, who had this little company and he opened it up. He opened it up to third-party sellers to sell whatever he wanted to. And we heard through the grapevine that Bezos was opening up the platform. I thought, yeah, you know what? Let me give this Amazon thing a try. This could be interesting. And what year was this? This was probably somewhere around 2008, 2009, something okay. like that. Okay. So I listed Accelerol on there, went to sleep, woke up in the morning, and we had thousands of orders at $120 mm. a piece just for me listing it overnight. And I said, holy canola, I need to learn more about this Bezos guy. And as I dug deeper into Jeff Bezos and Amazon and Amazon selling, I began to realize that this guy wasn't a chump. He wasn't just the little nerdy guy in a room sitting on some cinder blocks and a, and a wood door making that his desk. This guy was a titan. We just didn't know it yet. And he had brought cheap money coming from Wall Street into Silicon Valley and had been fostering those relationships, fostering that money, bringing in some of the best people in the industry, poaching people, allegedly, from companies like Walmart and from other big retailers to build up his distribution. This guy was going to build the world's biggest e-commerce platform, just like Piggly Wiggly did for retail back in the day. You know, you used to have to walk into the general store before our time and they'd be like, what do you want? Milk, bread, beer, great. Here you go. They put in a bag and give it to you. Piggly Wiggly came in and said, nope, we're building shelves. We're going to let brands compete against each other. We're building these things called shopping carts. And pretty soon the guy sitting in the general store was looking out his window, smoking his Winston's or whatever it was that they smoked in those days, looking out going, hey, what's going on there? Watching all his business go away. And that's what Bezos did. And I decided that I was going to master this platform. I put all my chips in on Amazon and we learned. People started coming to us. They started saying, hey, man this is cool. Can you do this for me? And I said, sure. They're like, what do you charge? I'm like, I don't know, but it's a lot because we're making a lot. So for me to take time. And then eventually we built this course because I wanted to empower more people in our agency. We do have an Amazon agency where we'll do the work for you and get you to number one and get you reviews and ranking and all that stuff. But outside of that, people were coming to me, people were like, just like us, normal people saying, hey, I'd like to start an Amazon business. I'd like to have a business that can bring recurring, predictable revenue. So we created the Amazon Mastery Course. It's fbasellercourse.com. And by the way, with your permission for any of your viewers and listeners that are interested, you can go to fbasellercourse.com. We'll include it in the show notes or shaheenshan.com. Or you can email me directly. I've got a one-hour course. It's a crash course, A to Z, everything you need to know to sell on Amazon, how to find a product, identify a product, how to get it listed on Amazon to the top of the page, and how to sell that product on Amazon. It's normally $200. Anybody who mentions the money advantage, I will give it to you for free. Zero, no credit card needed, no obligation. 
If I can inspire you to make money on the Amazon platform, to think foundationally, to build recurring revenue streams like cash flow positive real estate, uh, investments with compounded interest, having e-commerce businesses, not just on Amazon, but eBay, Etsy, Walmart, Wish, all these beautiful platforms that are, that are opening up. I truly believe that we are in one of the greatest times of wealth and prosperity. And while we've gone through a, a terrible last couple of years, now is the time where more millionaires and billionaires are going to be made. And the e-commerce platform that's going to make those millionaires and billionaires in our time is going to be Amazon. And everybody has access to it. It costs little or no money to start an Amazon business. And I teach people every day how to do it and to eventually get around the number one failure that most aspiring entrepreneurs make, which is selling their hours for money. It is the kiss mm -hmm. of death. That is definitely very interesting. And I love that you are recognizing and capitalizing on the trends and also just the healthy perspective that the world's not ending and going down, but that there is so much opportunity and possibility and potential, and that we just need to tap into it and jump into the right stream. I think there's just so much um, opportunity all around us. And I think that even goes back to the Napoleon Hill and the Think and Grow Rich um, concept that I too read that book. And it was fascinating to me that you came across that in your, I think you said your uh, junior high years. Um, but it's My just adolescence. Yeah. yeah. Which is fascinating that thinking differently and changing your actions and being, being able to understand what's going on around you is really what allows you to make different choices. And, you know, that's something, Bruce, that you have on the wall right behind you, think differently. And there's a huge part of thinking differently about your money and thinking differently, not only, Shaheen, you're talking about the side of creating the money in the first place. We talk about thinking differently about how you manage that money and how you grow it and how you store it so that you can access and use capital so you're in a financially solvent and stable position going forward and making sure you're solving all your financial goals and not just one at a time or compartmentalizing your wealth, but really thinking about how you achieve all of your goals in the best way possible. So I'll just um, do two things now. I want to invite you first to go ahead and check out Shaheen's course for getting that $200 off, meaning it's absolutely free to get the course. And I think that you said that was at fbasellercourse.com. Is that correct? That's right. Okay, perfect. And then Shaheen, can you spell your name, Shaheen Shane, for somebody who's sure. wanting to look you up and find you online? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Shaheen Shane, spelled S-H-A-A-H-I-N-C-H-E-Y-E-N-E. -E. And my website is shaheenshane.com or like she said, fbasellercourse.com or I'll give my email out. I get to email zero every day. Thanks to David Allen and getting things done. I get to inbox zero. You guys can email nice. me directly at d-a-r-k-z-e-s-s -S at gmail.com and just put the money advantage, send me the free course and I will send it to you. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us today. And if you are listening I would encourage you to reach out to Shaheen. I know that you are uh, speaking about creating wealth. You're talking on large stages. You're really being able to help people think differently about creating their capital in the first place. So go check him out. Thank you for joining us on the show today. And if you're in a position of saying, I would like to think differently about managing the wealth that I have 
and figuring out how to store that better in safer, more liquid, more accessible locations so that I can access capital, create a legacy for my family, be in a financially stable position, I encourage you to go to themoneyadvantage.com. You can book a call directly with our advisors there. You can ask any financial question. We have about four years worth of blogs and content and podcasts where we're answering financial questions that are deeply relevant to you as you are truly seeking to build wealth, not just a high income. So thank you so much for being with us today on this show. Shaheen, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for sharing your fascinating backstory and what you're really doing that's powerful in the world today. It's been super fun. Honor to be on. Thank you for having me. Awesome. In closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd, and build a life and business you love. <laughs>